The idea was how do we create a black space in a larger white institution? And that's like more so a metaphor for how do we create black movements within this larger white society that we're living in. Welcome to the September 20th, 2018 edition of the Hyperallergic Weekly Podcast art movements. You just heard a snippet of a much larger interview with Shawnee Peters and Joseph Coulier, the driving forces behind The Black School, a radical black arts education initiative that just completed a residency at the New Museum here in New York. I invited our editor, Jasmine Weber, to tell us a little bit about the group and share what she learned when she spoke to the duo. Hi, Jasmine. Hi, Harag. <laughs> So tell me a little bit, how did you first discover the Black School? I was first introduced to Shawnee and Joseph by Deborah Cullen, the former director of the Wallach Art Gallery at Columbia University. She was actually my undergraduate thesis advisor and came to introduce us, knowing our mutual interest in uh, radical Black aesthetics and Black art history. And so Shawnee and Joseph, through their initiative, The Black School, are really dedicated to bringing Black art history into educational curriculums within museums and within individually standing schools. Wow, that sounds like a big initiative. So you did their workshop six months ago, is that correct? Yes. So, so what was that like? Yeah, so the workshop was in late spring, um, and so they had introduced their process deck, which is an initiative and a tool that they use that mimics a set of tarot cards going through the principles, tactics, art mediums, questions, forms, and themes that are all located around this center of Black activism and artistry. And so they had formulated this process deck to teach individuals and to teach educators how to bring Black art history into their classrooms. That's great. So you said a tarot card. So they created their own tarot cards. Is that right? Yes. So a lot of their practice is really centered around graphic design mm -hmm. um, and how to bring in their own art making into these sorts of easily digestible and easily accessible ways of education. And so mm -hmm. you are able to peruse through these decks and formulate your own futures and your own hopes for black futurism. That sounds great. What are some of the cards themselves? Do you remember any of the names of the cards? Yeah, so there were definitions for different movements like Afrofuturism and black womanism, as well as examples of different forms of disseminating information, including leafleting or Probably make a web page, I'm guessing. Yeah. Nowadays. That's probably one of them, right? Or create a podcast. You know? Yeah, so they essentially were giving people these easy to understand ways of actively going out and expanding their own forms of knowledge surrounding the Black Arts Movement, but then also figuring out how they can mimic these forms like handing out zines to a greater public in these in these easy ways. So that's great. There's been a lot of movement around an emerging black arts consciousness. So I'm excited to hear your interview. So do you want to introduce them? Yeah. So I'll allow Shawnee and Joseph to introduce themselves and tell us a little bit about the black school and what their intentions are with that. I'm Shawnee. Uh, 
here with Joseph. We are co-administrators of The Black School, which is an experimental art school that brings together black radical history and public art. And we work with students in a structure that helps to guide them towards thinking of, uh, towards thinking of themselves and their art making as radical agents of change in their own communities. Hi, I'm Joseph Kouye. I'm an artist and educator with the Black School, and we also do Black Love Fest every summer. Great. So can you explain the model for revolutionary education that you both developed over the years? Um, We look a lot at the writings of Bell Hooks, Paulo Freire. We talked a lot about decolonial thought this last term and and really looking again at um, Frantz Fanon, just realizing how useful and critical that is to bring in to conversations. We also focus on tactics versus necessarily biography, right? So we look at Black radical history, but we try to parse out the work that people and movements have done um, from strictly the biographies. Um, and we design programs so that students um, begin there. We start every workshop with the questions, what do you love about your community and what do you want to change about your community? And then we go from there. Joseph can talk about the process deck, which we've um, recently developed as a way of helping to pull on those questions more. Well, going back to those questions, what do you love about your community and what do you want to change about your community? That is like taken from the principle of radical pedagogy that acknowledges that the students don't come to the classroom as empty vessels, but they come with the breadth of knowledge, knowledge that I may not have as the educator at the front of the classroom. So it's important to acknowledge they have that knowledge through those questions and acknowledge they are experts on their own lived experience. So if we're trying to teach them how to use art to transform that lived experience and that social reality, we have to make room for them to bring that knowledge and that information to the classroom. And then once we have that information, we give them a process that is realized now in the physical as a process deck that goes through principles, tactics, art mediums, Questions, questions, forms, and themes. And And an example of that, so the principles, you may choose a card that has black feminism or black womanism on it. And then tactics, you may choose uh, publishing. So an example of that from Radical Black History could be Kitchen Table and Press, Audre Lorde and a group of black and non-black feminists came together and organized a publishing press around the idea of women and their work being centered in the home and how to expand upon that that rooting or that base of women's work in the home being a central part of movement work and then allowing for movement work to happen and and progress. So have you been able to witness these actualized results from participants in the New Museum's teen program or from visitors at the exhibition? So the program's just wrapped and it's always a process of sort of planting seeds and um, watching that information grow over time. So there is yes and no. No, we don't know the the results of all of that just yet. We know that we had um, follow-up conversations with students and, you know, 
as usual here, just about how so much of this information is completely new to people, how surprising it is, really that kind of awakening moment. But the nature of our workshops is, especially in particular, the art making is always of a public nature. So we executed projects with students that they can then take into the world and share with their communities, right? So did screen printing of leaflets and asked them to create plans for how they will disseminate those. Um, we created cut poetry and collage pieces that we're duplicating for them so they can we paste those if they choose. We executed a photography workshop that was designed around a certain set of topics that they create hashtags for so that they can exist online as a social media campaign, as a hashtag campaign. And yes, it's a process for all of those things to go back out into the world, but that's the way the workshops are designed. Also, we started for the first time with this series of workshops, a system in which we began each workshop with a a short project that the students um, actually then teach themselves to um, to museum visitors later in the week. So that really starts to get them, the idea is that that starts to get them in the habit of sharing back this information that they've just learned from us um, and, and to understand the importance of sharing information that is not typically institutionally spread. Like we have to do it on a one-to-one level. And that, that seemed very successful. The students enjoyed that and got a lot from that. I'd say yes, we have seen those those changes. Uh, obviously, we haven't seen long-term changes because it hasn't been a long term since the end of those those workshops. But in the short term, we have seen consciousness raising. Like a lot of the students remark on like the ratio of these radical histories and how they're not being taught in their their uh, history classes in traditional schools, and how learning about these as opposed to just learning a little bit about slavery and a little bit about the civil rights movement has like opened their eyes up to the legacy of black people just being central to American history. Um, as long as there's been America, there's been black people and that that history can't be like separated out, even though like history books try to do that work as like a counter revolutionary tactic. But we also in the, the context of these workshops, we saw black and non-black students making their own decisions to organize around black feminism. Like many of the students in the workshops were not black. Most of them were POC, but black students only made a a small portion of those students. But they did do the work of centering black issues and black liberation. And they came to those realizations and, and put those ideas into action based on like their own desires to do that. For the exhibition and residency at the New Museum, Shawnee and Joseph utilized their own artwork to build a physical landscape in which these political conversations and aims were able to take place. So my contributions to the show were in the form of a painting, quote unquote, a painting that um, is like a faux fur material with digital prints on it and also this tent which is like a structure that is meant to house some of the programming that was happening in the show and the idea was 
how do we create a black space in a larger white institution? And that's like more so a metaphor for how do we create black movements within this larger white society that we're living in. Um, and I've seen different artists come up against this issue in the past of like deciding they want to declare a black space and not having those demands be met or honored. So I wanted to physically try to address that issue by like sanctioning off a space within the exhibition and using fabric to create this architecture where the programming we do can be housed, but also there could be this exercise where we could police our own space, where we could say who can enter and who can't enter, or what times this space is open to the public and what times this space is closed for private. And a lot of that work was like looking at post-painting the abstraction and how black art movements kind of created these conversations and these conflicts in the past, how the work of abstract black artists and the work of black art movement kind of was seen as like two different art worlds or two different black sections of the art world in conflict with each other but reimagining that conflict as like okay what if i bring what i have and what if you bring what you have and what if we come together um so the name of the tent is black space sam and leroy's dilemma so trying to reference that history of black art movements through uh sam gilliam representing kind of like black abstractionists and Leroy Jones and Mary Baraka representing the black arts movement. Yeah, and I'll also add that in that tent space that um, Joseph designed, we facilitated conversations with the students, meditation, which we incorporated into each session of the series of workshops, and also hosted a series of um, sort of DJ sets, performances from some really amazing artists and musicians, um, Mitch Johnson, Ivan Ford, Sonia Louise Davis, and also Joseph did a set. Also in the space are a series of screen prints um, that I made that I'm kind of imagining as motivational posters. I grew up, uh, and a, a lot of other people did, with these very generic, cheesy, motivational text posters in their classrooms um, that are, like everything else in Western classroom settings, designed for this sort of idealized, um, very white-centered American populace. So recentering that thought to design something specifically for Black students who are surviving all of the challenges that Black people in general are constantly having to survive. Uh, was an interesting sort of concept for me to to build off of. I also just want to point out that, you know, as designers of the curriculum of the Black school, of an art curriculum, of course, is our own practices and the skills that we, you know, execute in our practices that take precedent. So it really worked out. It was really beautiful to be able to create new work with students in the space of the existing work that we've made because we're able to pull so much out of it. You know, we actually 
began the workshops by talking about all of and working with all of the photographs that both Joseph and I sort of collage in historical photography in different ways. So we were able to start from the work to pull out the conversation and then teach them screen printing ourselves and then teach them poetry ourselves. Um, photography were not quite our expertise. We, that's when we bring in visiting artists whenever the, the budget allows to expose students to all those different um, mediums and ranges that we can't always get into. Joseph, Shani, and I opened up the conversation to speak more personally about our opinions on the state of the quote-unquote black art world and how to better support marginalized artists in this institutional setting. So something that's always on my mind is the precarity of black artistry and administrative positions in the museum. Um, We're riding this sort of hyper-political wake in the mainstream, and obviously that's had a great effect on exhibitioning in museum institutions and so as people who have been organizing around black art and making black art and educating about black history and black art I would love to hear your perspective on the position of blackness in the museum space right now and and how to institutionalize these changes so that they don't just dissipate if we just so happen to see a change in the mainstream political or social conversations that we're seeing surrounding race. Yeah, I think an important way to address that issue of um, institutions in mainstream American society seeing blackness as trendy, so sometimes it's in, sometimes it's out, is to continue to do this work inside and outside institutions. So we're doing this show with the new museum, we're doing different engagements within the museum and gallery system, but the core of our work happens outside of museums. It happens in the community, in the streets, going to people where they are, bringing the knowledge we have, and then transforming that knowledge into action. I don't think it's useful for us to learn all of this history just to give it to the institution or give it to the museum. Um, And getting acknowledgement from these institutions and getting pats on the head from them, it may feel nice in the short term, but that's not going to lead to the liberation, the goal that we're working towards. So it's only useful, this work we're making, this art that we're making, if it's rooted in action. So that's the way we kind of address that issue of the precarity of blackness in in mainstream art institutions. Yeah, I'd add two things to that. One being that it is our goal to be a self-standing, self-determined, not necessarily institution, right, but a freestanding black school. Um, so to whatever extent we can use resources to build towards that, we can use um, relationships with pre-existing you know, Western institutions to leverage towards that, we're going to do that, right? Um, and I could say a whole lot more about that. <laughs> but um, the other thing I for sure want to touch on is just the nature of our education and the United States education system in general. I mean, in general, since the 1980s, really, in particular the 90s, you've seen a privatization of art education where it's nonprofits coming into schools or student groups going to museums 
as the primary way of getting any art education to students. So that's why we're able to find support in addition to this for sure wave that we're having of interest, thanks to the Black Lives Matter campaign. Even before that, artists have not always, but um, artists of color have been able to find the most space in art education departments to execute these really more politicized projects because museums have been handed over the responsibility of teaching art to the nation's students across the board. But the idea of what you do as being revolution rather than reform, I think, is something that's really important and something that I hope can infiltrate the art community a lot more. Because I think that a lot of the time artists and critics and like other contributors are sort of placated by these ideas of like, quote unquote, diversity and whatever that means. And so I think that really pushing forward to the idea of tearing these institutions that are not made for us, not made for marginalized bodies, tearing them down and building something up that acknowledges real history. I think that that's really important. Yeah. Destroy and rebuild. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's important to acknowledge that diversity is a tool of white supremacy and anything that sustains the institution of white supremacy there be through reform is a tool of white supremacy. Yeah. Yeah. All the things we could go on. (laughs) I just want to thank Shawnee and Joseph for coming in. Thank you, Jasmine. Um, And Baldwin, she joined us (laughs) halfway through. They're toddler. They're very sweet. (laughs) Toddler is here. Thanks, Jasmine. That was a great interview. So what does the Black School have in store for us coming up next? They'll actually be hosting a series of five workshops with the Sugar Hill Children's Museum of Art and Storytelling in their neighborhood of Harlem. And they have a project in the works with the Bronx Museum where they're looking to launch an art and design media wing of the Black School. That's great. So and then how do we keep up to date with what they have going on? So they post about their movements on their Instagram at the Black School where you can keep up with what they have in store. Well, that's wonderful. Thanks so much, Jasmine. So do you want to join me for some of the headlines before we do a little bit of talk about Soul of the Nation later? Absolutely. Great. Turkey's Supreme Court rejected an application requesting that the 6th century Hagia Sophia, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, be open for Muslim prayers. The massive structure was the center of the Greek Orthodox Church for nearly a millennia before it was converted to a mosque after the Ottoman conquest of Istanbul in 1453. The building, which is located in central Istanbul, has served as a museum since 1935. In recent years, however, thousands of Muslims have prayed at the Hagia Sophia exterior, urging the site to be reopened as a mosque. And last week, we reported on the devastating fire that gutted the National Museum of Brazil in Rio de Janeiro. And now students at a local university are asking people to share photos or videos that they took on their own personal visits. So sad. After the museum was destroyed by a raging fire, a reported 2 million artifacts, of course, were lost in the blaze, if not more. So far, the students have received 14,000 photographing and video submissions. Wow. Incredible. And the Emile Cole School of Lyon, France, was caught doctoring a group photo to make students in the group look black. 
I mean, you can't make this up. I can't even be offended because it's hilarious. <laughs> the photo and is horrible. Hilarious. Well, you know, did you see the one where they were like blackening the skins of certain students who had hairstyles that yes. looked a certain way? The students with curly hair were immediately darkened. And right. then there were a number of stock images with completely different lighting from the room. It's the it was, worst Photoshop It job. was terrible. So... <laughs> So the school assistant director told CNN that the communication company decided on its own to darken the skill of some of the students to add diversity. And the communication cam campaign was made in the U.S. Do we believe them, Jasmine? I don't know. I, it seems <laughs> unlikely. It seems it definitely seems like a like a, a ridiculous, ridiculous thing. So the Abraj Group, a Dubai-based private equity firm, will not renew its partnership with Art Dubai, which, as many people know, is one of the premier art fairs in that region. The firm filed for liquidation in June after its founder faced accusations of misusing investor funds. Yikes. Previously, the Abraj Group was the primary sponsor of Art Dubai and was considered to have laid the path for corporate patronage of the arts in the city. This comes on the heels of reports that Arif Nakvi, Abraj's founder had been having trouble all year. Bloomberg reported in June that four investors in the healthcare fund, including the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, had recruited forensic accountants to investigate where their money had gone. Yikes. And the final news, the Metropolitan Museum of Art has acquired Wang Gris, the musician's table from 1914 through funds given by the Leonard Lauder Fund for the Leonard Lauder Cubist Collection. And I don't know if you know about this, but you know, in the last few years, the Metropolitan Museum has really created an amazing Cubist collection based on one major donation from the Lauders as well as these other things. The collection now includes 83 works by Georges Braque, Wang Gri, Ferdinand Leger, and Pablo Picasso. The Musician's Table joins six other collages from that pivotal moment of the artist's career, and Gris' newly acquired work is now on view in Gallery 908. So I'm in the studio with Seth Rodney, hyperallergic editor, as well as Jasmine Weber, also hyperallergic editor, and Shireen Saad, who's a contributing writer. And we're talking about the Soul of a Nation Art in the Age of Black Power, which was originally organized by the Tate in collaboration with the Brooklyn Museum and the Crystal Bridges Museum in Bentonville, Arkansas, and the Broad. I mean, so many people involved in this show. This is a massive show. So Jasmine, I'm going to give you the first word. What was your first impression? My first impression walking through the museum was that the scope that they were able to cover from the 1970s through the late 1980s of black art coming out of America was so comprehensive and so expansive that it would work really successfully as a curriculum, as its own sort of syllabus for people interested in black art and a really great jumping off point for someone interested in doing their own research or for an educator to build their own classroom and their own educational space surrounding these wow, artworks. Wow, that's quite an endorsement. Seth, do you feel the same way? or? Well, I think I have a slightly different take in that. Um, my experience with the show was colored very much by my previous couple of years working for Hyperallergic, going from sort of state to state and abroad and seeing a lot of these artists in those other collections. So 
seeing people like Melvin Edwards at the Museum of Sao Paulo and seeing Roy D. Caraba. Actually, I remember Roy D. Caraba from the time I was an undergrad and I fell in love with photography. Um, Barclay Hendricks at various places, various museums in the country. Norman Lewis all over the place. Um, Sam Gilliam, actually, I remember very well seeing him at David Kordansky in L.A. And then when I saw a piece that they have in Soul of the Nation, I actually ran into the curator who had just previously led the group in a kind of tour of the show. And I saw her again standing by herself and I said, I need to show you something. And I, and I went over to her and I showed her my phone and I showed her my Twitter page. And on my Twitter page, on the banner, you can see a picture of... Sam Gilliam's work from David Kordansky Gallery. And I said, I love that I walked into this space in one of the spaces and it's just Sam Gilliam just wrapped around, folded on this wall and this little cupola by himself. And his work is gorgeous. And I love the fact that I could walk into the show and see these artists in conversation with each other. It actually felt like, in a way, coming home to a sort of raucous Thanksgiving dinner where all the folks that I'd seen in other places were finally together in one place kind of having a conversation. What a beautiful way of saying that. Shereen, what did you think? What was your first impression of the show? I had a similar uh, impression in terms of the conversation. And for me, it was a very musical conversation. And when you talk about the title of the exhibition, Soul of a Nation, you know, and when you think about that period and soul music and the music of that era that was very political but also it was very jubilant and it was very uh, it was very deep it was there's a lot of sorrow in it and rhythm of course and the exhibition itself has a lot of rhythm and color and you mentioned there's actually a playlist I mean there's a Spotify playlist and there there was music in some of the galleries at the exhibition as yes well. as you enter the exhibition there's a Nina Simone tune and I believe there's a James Brown and there's a Spotify playlist that is parallel to the exhibition and we'll put Put that in the links to this podcast. Yeah, and also a lot of the works were inspired by musicians such as uh, John Coltrane and, and Marvin Gaye. So you have Barclay Hendrix's What's Going On, the painting that everybody's really uh, reacting to in a strong way. Well, that, that was a painting that you were, I mean, I remember you came back from the press preview, Jasmine, and your first impression was the Barclay Hendrix paintings. Yeah, so I was really struck by these sort of nearly life-size paintings by Barclay Hendricks all in one place. It was my it was my first time interacting with them and experiencing them in person, and the size of them along with the color and just this vibrancy even in the even in the almost monochromatic sort of panorama that's mainly white where all of the figures are dressed in these white suits, um, seeing these in one place was a really visceral experience in terms of being given a chance to view firsthand these images, these paintings that I've been only able to view in photographs, and one of which I've had in my dorm room all four years of college. (laughs) Um, It really just brought together a bunch of truly iconic pieces of work in a really accessible space. And what I love about the Barclay Hendricks, one of the Barclay Hendricks portraits is the one that's actually situated to the right of the one that you mentioned with the people in white suits and the one naked um, woman character. 
the one to the right is Barkley Hendrix. It's a self-portrait of him just naked. Naked with some, like, cool-ass shades on and, like, I think I like a fedora hat or something. No, it's like a Kango hat. Yeah. And, um, and I think he has some rings on and a chain. And he's just standing there like like a black man from the 70s. Just, like, he's present. He's not ashamed of his body. He's like, yeah, baby, it's cool. Like, I'm naked. You should be naked, too. <laughs> this is, what, is how I read that portrait. So I love that painting. That's great. So I'm curious, Jasmine, why that was the image you choose for your, chose for your dorm room? Because, you know, the psychology of the dorm room, you know, why was it that one? I have just always really adored the depth that I think is coming out of all of those different shades of white. Yeah. And the fact that he was able to just create these really detailed garments on these people and this really beautiful contrast between this really rich skin and these really starkly white outfits mm. out of such similar colors with right. so much detail regardless and what i love about that too is also that was the era really of minimalism in the monochrome so it's also kind of in dialogue right mm -hmm. with with that and you sort of forget that it's like he was mm -hmm. i mean that was the mainstream right mm -hmm. at the end of the day in that whole era so there's definitely that so now what did you guys think of the curating uh, because you know the thing is for this show is every venue has a different curator mm -hmm. and so in the case of the Brooklyn Museum uh, Ashley James uh, the assistant curator of contemporary art there is the one who did this thoughts so Ashley James essentially organized the show by region and by era I didn't have the chance to see it at the Tate and so I'm not sure if this was the same organization, but the way that you were able to walk through, I guess, is also part of the reason why it read as this visual syllabus of Black art from this era, because you were able to step in to a time period in the 1960s, late 1960s, 1970s, and walk right through until you end up with Lorraine O'Grady's iterations of this parade in Harlem, these really beautiful photographs of her performance piece, Art Is, I believe it's yeah. called. Yeah. Um, and so I guess being able to walk through this, this very meticulous curation in regards to the region and the time period was really successful, in my opinion. Shireen, what do you think? Well, Jasmine, didn't you think that the show is also about female power, not only about black power, because there are so many female artists in the show. Obviously, the curator is a, a young woman, and also the subjects of a lot of the um, art are women and powerful women. And a lot of people know that that era was also led by very strong women uh, leaders. What do you think about that? So I think that Ashley James put a really strong focus, and also the original curators from the Tate so I think that that original curation by Zoe Whitley and Mark Gottfried and then sort of enhanced and changed in ways by Ashley James, it really did successfully and really carefully bring out the role that so many black women artists had in the black arts movement of this time period and put a really strong focus on them, um, especially within the Afro-Cobra movement, which was a really big offshoot from Spiral and Kamoinji that didn't have that same um, presence of women artists in their collectives. And so there was a lot of care taken to the women artists, specifically focusing on black women, what women's representation. So, Seth, what was your favorite work in the show? I'm going to stick with the Sam Gilliam because um, what's kind of special about that work, and, I, and, I, and the title escapes me at the moment, but 
the piece is is draped and but it's also knotted so it's it 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 reads as an almost like a kind of banner there's something kind of celebratory in its presentation and sam gilliam for me is one of those few artists who you can see in his work the love that he had for the material for the paint for everything that it all the possibilities it gave him to play i love that and i i think I, the first time i saw sam gilliam's work i kind of fell in love with that and that love has never abated love that that's great jasmine do you have a favorite um, I think that I would say the Barclay Hendricks work only because, as I said, I've curated my own little wall in my, <laughs> in my dorm room. And so seeing it in this massive form in this really beautifully curated exhibition was significant for me. <laughs> Shireen, how about you? Did you have a favorite that stuck out? I have to say I don't really have uh, one favorite because I was a huge fan of the entire show, but I love Betty Tsar's work and I really love the uh, elements of collage and found objects um, that I saw throughout the show and the sort of uh, references to uh, indigenous cultures and sculptures and things like that I thought were really powerful. So now, okay, we're critics at the end of the day, so we also have to be critical. So I'm curious if there was something that you would add to the show that you think would really contribute to it or something you would change slightly. Is there anything that, you know, because, you know, sometimes exhibitions, they fall into cliches or sometimes they fall into different things that may sort of, you know, you wish challenged you a little more. Anything pop into your head? I think that there could have been a little bit more film. Uh, I think that there are some really interesting filmic moments that come out of that time period, which sort of edge towards the black exploitation uh, genre. And I think that, that I would have appreciated seeing some of that kind of work. Um, there wasn't much of it. I think there was just a Lorraine O'Grady film. Was that a film? Um, no, there was a film. It was a performance that was um, based off of the cakewalk. Okay, right. Yeah, the Lorraine O'Grady, um, the only work by her, I believe, in the show was the the series of photos from the Art Is performance. Okay, did Howardina Pendel perhaps that have was, a video? That was a, something that I was going to say also. There right. were two paintings, I believe, by Howardina Pendel, but they uh -huh. didn't have her like very iconic, um, the film where she dresses as a white woman and sort of interrogates herself. Right, um, right. But that also is likely due to the fact that Howardina Pendel has a traveling retrospective perspective right now mm -hmm. and they might have the sole rights mm -hmm. to show that. In fact, I just saw a film of hers at the Out of Easy Reach show in Chicago a couple of months back. So I guess she was sort of on my mind and that sort of filmic tease was present for me. I mean, I, I just think it's a really, it's it's already a lot. As you said, it's a whole, you know, it's a whole, I could imagine even a PhD program on this subject, you know. I mean, it's a new art history that we're basically, and a new history of America, you know, that a lot of people aren't aware of, that, you know, we're, we're learning about for a lot of us. Uh, however, I think it's interesting to perhaps see more of a 
conversation with contemporary artists mm -hmm. in the era of Black Lives Matter? And, you know, are they as political? How are they uh, dealing with issues of representation, portraiture, um, dialogues with, you know, the past artists of this art history and also uh, reacting to specific cultural moments? Right. You know, I, I think it would be really interesting to bring it into the present, as you said, with more contemporary work. And I'm curious because, you know, you talk about sort of this this chapter of Black art history in America, but... Are they showing the lineage, like where it's coming from? I mean, how much of that was successful for like someone who's sort of walking in blindly? Do you think they did a good job doing that? I would say so. I think that um, walking in, there's two floors, the fifth floor, and then you walk down into the fourth floor. The fifth floor did have a really heavy focus on figurative painting and figurative depictions in artwork. And then as you walk downstairs, you see this sort of moment where black artists are sort of reaching out of those bounds that they were so tightly constrained in, occasionally by choice and then often by way of being boxed in by a larger art community and what they expected of black artists from that time. And so as you move downstairs, there still is a lot of figurative artwork, but you see a lot more abstraction. And I think that that, that sort of differentiation would be pretty clear to someone walking in without that background knowledge? Yeah, I, I, will, I will say, putting my critical hat on, that probably this selection of abstract works were not as daring as it could have been. I mean, I'm thinking of people who don't necessarily fit into that sort of touchy-feely or friendly sort of abstraction, like Colin Washington, for example. Uh, Abstraction that's really kind of hard to get your head around. Shanique Smith, maybe, even. Abstraction that you really have to kind of take your time with. Torquasi Dyson. There are difficult black artists, that, especially of this current generation. Artists who are like between their 30s and 40s right now. Uh, maybe a little older. Or even, um, I'm thinking of um, Tamashi Jackson. They are doing work that is really challenging, and I don't think the show had a lot of that kind of work, that kind of work that would like push you. It pushes you up against that kind of conceptual barrier, saying, basically saying to the viewer, look, this work is a lot deeper than you would like, perhaps, to have to deal with, because I'm going to give you challenging ideas. I'm not going to just sort of give you a sort of comforting image. I think there could have been more work like that. That's a good point. So what is the time frame for the whole exhibition? What should people expect? It starts? It starts in the late 1960s. I can't confirm exactly what year and then moves through. I believe Art Is was 1983 artwork, mm -hmm. um, which is, I believe, the latest in the show. And so did they use a specific historical markers for those? Did you get a sense of what they were looking for? Like, why those dates? Why those? Why, why is that the age of black power? Because I think that's the age when you have the social movements begin to sort of um, nourish this sort of artistic movement. So you have the rise of the Black Panther Party in the late 60s, mid-60s to late 60s. You have what is essentially a black political movement begin to coalesce around the power centers in the um, churches in the South, but also very much connected to places in the North. So you have, I think, a kind of growing consciousness. And here's one of the strengths of the show is that it really does, it, with detailing how these things had a sort of reach, how these movements had a regional flavor, mm -hmm. it does begin to show us how 
a kind of ethos develops on a national scale. There is a kind of soul to this nation. It is not just a sort of uh, arbitrarily chosen title. I would also say that the show starts um, in this wake of the Black Power movement and and shows the way that art was growing throughout that time. And it's really tightly constrained in that era in the sense that we're building throughout the late 1960s through the 1980s. And then there is a stark contrast between the aesthetic sort of products coming out of the age once black American culture starts to become defined by hip hop culture. And Mm. as we move into the crack epidemic Mm. and mass incarceration, Mm. I think there's a very stark difference in the aesthetics coming out of that moment and then moving into like post blackness. And I think that that was a smart way for the show to sort of be defined. Yeah, agreed. Beautifully put, Jasmine. So thank you, Shireen. Thank you, Jasmine. Thank you, Seth. And I'm sure everybody will check out Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power at the Brooklyn Museum that opened last week. Thank you. (laughs) Now, one more thing. We decided to make this a very special episode of Art Movements by offering one more feature. This week, our Los Angeles reporter, Matt Stromberg, attended an unusual pause that took place at Cal State Long Beach. This was a pause pressed by artist Lauren Woods, who was opening her American Monument project at the college's museum. Her project is a multimedia installation addressing police brutality and the killing of African-Americans by police officers. The centerpiece of the monument, Woods is adamant that it not be referred to as an exhibition, consists of a grid of 25 record players on white podiums, each holding a record related to a death. Sandra Bland, Alton Sterling, Mike Brown, Philando Castile, Eric Gardner, and others. The audio on these records is gathered from police reports, court transcripts, and bystander recordings. The project was going on as planned, but then days before the monument opened, Kimberly Meyer, the museum's director, was fired. American Monument was a project that she helped spearhead. So Woods decided to end her introduction to the project by placing a pause on the monument. Thankfully, Matt Stromberg recorded her speech, but sadly it wasn't with professional equipment. So our sound engineer worked his usual magic to clean up the audio, but I'll warn you, it's not perfect. So with the artist's permission, we're presenting the whole speech, which is roughly 28 minutes. I should also warn you that during a latter part of the recording, roughly around the one hour, six minute, seven minute mark to be exact, Woods plays one of the records in her installation, and the sound may be disturbing for some listeners. The audio is Diamond Reynolds' recording of the shooting of her boyfriend, Philando Castile, by the Minneapolis Police Department. And don't worry in case you aren't able to understand any of the words in the speech. You can visit the Monument's website, which is AmericanMonument.blog, for the complete text of her speech.
So I understand the point. 
right now, like I said, the rooms are there because we have to actually act the engagement.
that anyone with a 21 foot radius is a threat, and you have the right to shoot them, or at least the courts have been giving the right to shoot them. So what we have now is that officers who are actually ready at, at, a, at an active shooting stance position are able to justify people that enter into a 21 foot radius shooting them multiple times by this unofficial rule. The one thing that I'm, uh, I'm relieved to, uh, to, to read about right now, and this is literally because of sort of the floating point we're at with these sorts of violent acts and because of the movement for black lives, is that finally the law enforcement community itself is starting to debate this And so maybe that training will shift a little bit. Maybe the courts will stop allowing this justification. So as you move into that space, there's a table that's 21 feet long to represent that distance. There's a table that's 18 feet long, which is the distance that Laquan McDonald was shot 16 times in the back. And then there's a table, a smaller table, that's 5 feet long. And that, that length is a little bit, uh, is an estimation. That, that length comes from a case from L.A. in 1999, a woman named Margaret Mitchell, who was 78 years, 75 or 78 years old. Um, she was homeless, living downtown. A known sort of uh, resident of downtown Skid Row with a large shop, shopping cart and lots of bags. Um, and she was having, she was mentally ill, and she was holding a six inch screwdriver and sort of just wanted the police to stay away from her. Which was pulling her cart at the same time. And so if those people know this case probably and, and, and sort of the media circus that surrounded the sort of controversy was that there were so many witness statements that contradicted the police officer's statement that the prosecutors decided that they couldn't make any sort of judgment. So the table is five feet um, five feet long, but there's also witness, witness statements that say that it was eight feet long. She was a 78 year woman who was shot uh, while holding a screen driver. And many of the witnesses still wouldn't justify it. So that's that middle space and then there's
a loved one to be involved, to get involved in this project. And that sort of became a light bulb moment for me in terms of, I don't know, I haven't, and I won't go much into it, but I do have a specific philosophy and politic about how I'm involved and how much I've actually lost. Um, trying to have lost around this issue. Um, I, uh, years ago, went to this group uh, called Mother Transformation Hospitality. It was founded in Dallas, that's where I um, live. Um, I was a organizer with that, with that organization when it was first founded. And I had to witness pretty up close what that sort of loss on a day to day feels like. And so I've been very careful not to sort of invite those families into the spectacle that I create around this issue because it's a very different relationship. But this question did give me an idea. And there's also the idea that this is our loss, right? So there's the loss of the families, and they have to do the grieving, right? Because they 
Engaging our sense of beauty and our desire to transform. American Art Monument is that artwork. Its ability to transform is now up to you. We all owe a deep and lasting gratitude for... Okay, I shouldn't read this. <laughs> we all owe a deep and lasting gratitude for the brilliant Martin Lewis. Choice. 
I said yes to both Kimberly Meyer and Cal State Long Beach, and I'm committed to all that that yes signifies. It shows disregard for what the labor that manifests it actually is. 
partially informed this ill-informed decision. I need to make clear that American Monument is not that type of work. It's not that type of artwork. I need to make visible what this work actually is. This is not an exhibition of objects. This is not a show of conceptual play. American Monument is a transformative process. It is a process. Not an object, it's a process. That wants to tackle the culture of police brutality through cultural production. And it can only exist through collaborative authorship. American Monument is emergent. It is conceptualized to shift over time through a co-creative process that addresses state and institutional violence. Since its inception, it has shifted week to week, responding to the variables at play. The denial of open records request, the newest police murder, the need of identified stakeholders and co-creators, and my own capacity to deeply submerge myself in the details of over 300 cases of police brutality. Again, the work is process-based and responsive. The work wants to end anti-blackness. And so today, there is a new response that must be articulated. A response to the violent act of Kimberly Myers' termination six days before this project launched. I have come to this place after being here for a week, putting forth a good faith effort to launch this work, and coming to understand the implicit statement of this sort of institutional violence in which the stewards of Cal State Long Beach attempted to suffocate this work. I have been putting forth this effort despite knowing ultimately what the university's position is to this project because I'm not only committed to the work of the American Monument, but I'm compelled to address and participate in the collective need to end police brutality. And this particular way of working is an extension of that need. But it has become clear to me that I cannot just pivot and continue working with injury. But I must respond to the conditions created by the current institution that extended the invitation to host this iteration of the American Monument. The University Art Museum, College of the Arts, and Cal State Long Beach have a neat capture project that is focusing on black lives and police brutality. They have killed a leadership initiative whose focus was not only to address white supremacy, but to disrupt it. They have rejected the invitation for collective authorship. As it stands, the UAM is not capable of hosting this iteration of American Monument. American Monument can only resume its co-creative process when restored, which can only happen with Kimberly Meyer retained as the director of UAM. And so with great sadness and profound disappointment, I hereby declare this process to continue American Monument paused. It is paused, not pulled, but paused. It is paused because I'm calling for true partnership. I want to offer the university the chance to engage in a restorative process and to demonstrate their commitment to the work of anti-racism an impulse that is evident by the choice to hire Kimberly Meyer, who declared up front that this was the mission and vision for her tenure. I'm calling for the university to engage in a restorative process and to take a public stance on ending police brutality and the culture and practice of anti-blackness. It's my understanding that there is an appeal process for the termination and that Kimberly will engage 
And so we, the witnesses, await the results of this procedure. A copy of this letter shall be installed in the museum for the duration of this process to mark this moment of pause. This week, I want to send a special thanks to Dried Spider for providing the music to this week's episode. I'm Hrog Vartanian, editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening, and enjoy your week. Yeah.